This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks. We are your official books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM Network. I'm Bruce Gibson, joining you once again to talk about Star Trek books, which I love to do, and I don't like to do this alone. I always have to have a partner in crime, and that person's name is Dan Gunther. Hey, Dan, how you doing? Hey, Bruce, always happy to be a partner in whatever crime you end up committing, as long as it's not too much of a felony and, you know, doesn't affect my ability to travel freely. But other than that, if it's just talking Star Trek books, I'm there. It's a crime of passion is what it is. Our, <laughs> our passion for Star Trek books. <laughs> that is true. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, what? and that's what's so great about doing the show is it really makes me read the books more often than I normally would. And it's like, I've read three Star Trek books in the past week. And I just love that. (laughs) You know, I'm just like on cloud nine going like, what's the next (laughs) one I'm going to read? Well, especially for me, because first of all, we got to read the DTI novella, which we'll be talking about in the feature, which, you know, I love the department of temporal investigations. I love it whenever they pop up on the schedule, but also you know, kind of a bit of a preview for an upcoming episode. I'm Enigma Tales by Una McCormick. Man, am I loving this book. So a lot of fun reading Star Trek novels this week. So yeah, we'll review that book on the next episode and Una will be on to talk about it. So that's exciting too. Absolutely. Very excited about that. Well, before we get into our feature talking about the DTI ebook we are going to go into our news topics and we've got just two brief things that we want to mention so as some of you may be aware eagle moss has the set of star trek comic volumes uh there's like these hardcover volumes that if you subscribe to in the uk you can get every graphic novel ever done through this series of books that would be mailed to you and volume one was last month and that was the countdown issue uh and these are all previously published comics so they're being reprinted into these volumes well volume two just came out and eagle moss released it with two stories harlan ellison's original version of the city on the edge of forever that one's in there and then also 
another classic, Gold Key Comics number two, <laughs> The Devil's Isle of Space. So you can get a really good story and some weird Gold Key story all in one volume. <laughs> and the really cool thing about this, too, is if you go into our back catalog of literary trick literary treks episodes we've reviewed both of these so you can find our thoughts on on both of these at some point in the uh history of literary treks yeah so we're not going to be reviewing it for that reason because we've already reviewed these stories separately in some other past shows so quite interesting the other thing just want to mention is that hidden universe travel guides star trek the klingon empire by dayton ward comes out july 18th uh, we had Dayton on a few episodes back talking about this travel guide coming out. Just wanted to remind everyone it does come out on Tuesday, July 18th. So take a look at that book, learn about Kronos and other places to go to on the Klingon homeworld. And uh, it should be a fun, interesting read, just like the Vulcan one that came out last year. Definitely looking forward to this one. The Vulcan guide has a prized place on my shelf and... This one looks to be just as good. A lot of those little in-jokes that Dayton Ward throws in there and really just a lot of fun, a really cool companion piece to Star Trek. Exactly. I, I have to admit, I have like the last two chapters of the Vulcan Guide that I've never finished reading and it's sitting on my nightstand next to my bed. So I will have <laughs> that done before the Klingon one comes out. Excellent. And we can, we can plan a really epic, you know, cross-quadrant vacation at some point in the future <laughs> yeah you know what you could do one vacation go you know vulcan and then go to chronos afterwards and compare the two and see which one you liked better <laughs> <laughs> write a write an entry on a travel blog and call it the best of both worlds oh i love that <laughs> so the first part of the trip is part one the next part of the trip is part two exactly yeah gotcha <laughs> just don't get assimilated <laughs> on your trips <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's the news. That's all we have for this week. So we might as well just dive right in into our feature. Excellent. I'll see you there. In today's feature, we are reviewing an ebook that came out uh, in the past few weeks, and it's called The Department of Temporal Investigations, Shield of the Gods. And this is written by Christopher L. Bennett. Now, this isn't the first time he's written a DTI book. So this is actually the third of the ebook series. And I think it may be the last of the series. I don't think there's plans for a fourth, but who knows that may come up later. But as for right now, that's three ebooks and this is the last of the three. And we've reviewed the previous two as those came out. So now we're going to review this one. And I've got to say, I enjoyed this story, but I also went back and reread the other two just because hmm. I wanted to see what it would be like to read this as like one big volume of stories and to let everybody know i in my opinion the first story isn't really related to the second and third that much but the second mm -hmm. one and the third one really do fit well together it's kind of like a feels like more like a part one part two with books two and three right and christopher bennett has said he really crafted these two stories as a duology uh, apparently the um the contract, that's the word I'm looking for, the contract for each of the books that he wrote, the first one, the the two novels plus the ebook novella, the first one, were all individual contracts for a single book. But this one was crafted as a two-part story with, with two 
ebooks as part of that contract. So that's very much by design that these two stories are presented as kind of, you know, a loose part one and part two, although actually not as loose as I was expecting. They very much do dovetail into one another. So did you remember a lot from the previous book, Time Lock, or did you have to go back and kind of remind yourself of some of the storyline? It's kind of one of those things that reading Shield of the Gods, uh, I I didn't go back to Time Time Lock and reread it. I maybe should have. But once I got into Shield of the Gods, it kind of twigged my memory to a lot of that stuff and, and what happened there. You know, and I, I really enjoyed Time Lock. So it was kind of one of those things where a lot of those uh, plot points came back to me fairly easily because it was a book that I really enjoyed reading. So it kind of stuck in my memory once it kind of got jogged there. I think that's what the authors do a really good job at, uh, whether they're writing a book two, three or whatever in a series they have to assume that maybe you haven't read the previous books. And so they, they're very mm. good at giving a summary of what happened before. Whether you've read the book or not, it's really helpful to kind of refresh your memory or just to kind of catch you up to events that are going on. So, yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot in here that just kind of catches you up on what happened in Time Lock. And so this story continues that story of Time Lock. And then we have... Dayar, which is, she is, uh, she was, I guess you could say she was kind of the villain, the bad guy in the time lock book. So now she's in this because we left kind of on a cliffhanger with her in time lock. So now we have her in shield of the gods. And in the previous book, she raided the vaults where they keep all these different items, these gadgets that, that the DTI has recovered and kept in the vault of these time gadgets that people can use to travel through time or manipulate you know maybe even go into other universes and such so she took something from the vault and she's a member of the tamika and they're a civilization that belonged to the vomnin colonial consortium i love all these names <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue christopher for me. bennett has this yeah he he has this thing with these crazy names and uh it's a little, it's kind of one of those things. And we talked about this on the other side of the page where when you're reading it by yourself, you kind of, you know, I wouldn't say you gloss over the names, but you kind of pronounce them in your head, however you pronounce them. And it doesn't really matter. But then we get together on the podcast here and we have to try and figure out how we're going to pronounce all these names. And it's harder than you might expect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And it's not just Christopher Bennett. I mean, all the authors come up with names, you know, because this is all space and different alien races and species. So they always have come up names. And yeah, when I read it, it's like, and blah, 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 went and da, 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 da. And um, so when I get in the podcast, I just want to go and blah, blah, blah. But it's not that easy. So yeah. I mean, we, we recently read a book where one of the alien names had a semicolon in it. So <laughs> oh, I did like that one. That was fun. So it could always be worse. <laughs> right. So Dayar, who's part of the Tom... Tamika, <laughs> I did it again. The Tamika, she is uh, part of the Vomin, not Vomit, Vomnin Colonial Consortium. And she stole this futuristic, well, I shouldn't say future, futuristic. She stole a temporal drive from the future. Now, what makes this drive so special is it's untraceable. That's why she's stealing it, because she can go through time and no one can trace her. Uh, so, that that's a big deal but there's a piece missing 
she can't just use this. She needs yet another piece. And that's kind of where this book starts off. She is uh, in search of this other piece that she needs to make this drive work. And mm-hmm. so the DTI is out looking for her and finds this planet where all these weird, like, I guess, illegal gadgets are being sold, uh, like a some kind of marketplace. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been there, Dan? No, but after reading this, I kind of really want to. I mean, can you imagine, like, I, I don't know, what you could get there, maybe discount hollow sweets or something. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like... When I lived in Korea, for example, there was this tech market and, and you could buy just all kinds of of technological stuff, you know, iPads or, or whatever. And it was multi-floor and there was just hundreds of, of retailers everywhere just selling all kinds of stuff. That's kind of what I pictured here was just, you know, kind of this almost ramshackle, just tons and tons of vendors selling anything they could get their hands on kind of thing. Exactly. And that's what this is. And there's a Ferengi there and their, their DTI is using this Ferengi to kind of, you know, help them out to capture her. And anyway, I'm not going to go through all the story, you know, you, you can read the book yourselves, but <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, I want to, but I'm not going to. So um, at this point, so she is an agent of the Aegis. Okay. Now the Aegis is like Gary seven and that's what she's Mm -hmm. like. She's part of that organization. And so the whole plot goes around her trying to use this technology to go back in time to prevent another civilization from destroying hers, which I think we'll get into more detail a little later. And at the same time, we have two agents of the DTI that are that are working together to try to stop her. And one is a Delton, which I always want more Deltons in stories. So I'm glad we have a Delton. Mm-hmm. And he's he was in a, uh, one of the previous DTI novels, too. But his, yeah, he's been a he's been kind of a regular face. We've known. Yeah, a regular for a while. bald head that that, <laughs> that we know, too. Right. <laughs> They're all bald. But uh, his name is. Oh, help me with this one, too. Rangia. Yeah, Rangia, Rangea, something like that. Rangea. First name Mayo, which I, I, I don't know if is is this a temporal agent or a you know sandwich spread. I'm not sure, but <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> and he's partners with oh get this, I can do this name, Teresa Garcia. Oh, there we go. Yes. There's there's a name that we can pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> so we have them together, but then Rangea is I guess you could say he was kidnapped uh, by Dayar. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the story really starts to take off. And so now we have to go and get her. <laughs> it's like a game, right? We have to go get her. So what would you think at this point, Dan, of the plot? Well, it was kind of one of those things. And I mean, I really enjoy the DTI books for some reason, it took me a little while to get into this one. It just, it seemed to start out a little bit. I, I don't want to say slow because it, it there's, it's a ebook that's fairly short. It doesn't really have time to be slow, <laughs> but it just, there was, it didn't hook me right away. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure why I did kind of, like you say, the story kind of kicks off once this kidnapping happens, kidnapping sort of, but you know, once, once the separation between Garcia and Rangea happens there, I feel like that's when the story really kicks into gear and I'm really getting interested. But 
I don't know. For some reason, it, it just took me a little while to get into the story here. I wonder if that's because you're coming off of Time Lock and there was a lot of action going in that. And then we get into this mm-hmm. one and it was more from the point of view, at least at the beginning of the book, it was more from the point of view of these agents and just trying to figure out how they're going to rope day yard in and, and, and try to find her and try to figure things out and explore kind of their relationship together. And so maybe, maybe because the other book was seemed to move really fast with a lot of action, this kind of took a breather in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's certainly part of it. Um, one thing I actually put in the outline to talk a little bit about was, you know, how time lock very much seemed to be plot centric. So, you know, there's a lot happening in it. There's a, uh, a lot of action scenes within the time vault as, you know, Dayar is trying to evade the temporal agents and, and trying to escape with this, this, uh, temporal warp drive. And I mean, there is certainly a lot of character in that first book. We get the relationship between Dolmer and, and his new fiance. And, you know, that, that's kind of a big part, but for me, it seemed very action oriented. And this one seems to, focus a lot more on the characters, a lot more on the relationships between the various characters and what that means personally to the lives of the people in the book. And I mean, that is certainly not a bad thing. I love character centric stories, but I think it's a, it's, it's almost a question of expectations versus what we actually get. I think I just had to kind of flick that switch in my mind that, okay, okay, this isn't going to be a crazy off the wall jumping through time and, and, you know, shoot them up kind of thing. It's, oh, okay. It's a, it's a slower, more character driven story and just kind of had to adjust my expectations a little bit. Were you surprised which characters this book focused on the most? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, the, the, the two, quote unquote main characters of course are Dolmer and Luxley that we see for a total of about three minutes in Trials and Tribulations but they've kind of been the heart and soul of the DTI books and I actually really like that we focus a lot more on Rangea and Garcia and their partnership and their relationship as well as surprising to me the character of Dyar I thought got a lot of really interesting exploration here she wasn't just you know, a a villain with unscrutable justifications for her actions. She's a very well-rounded character that we really come to understand a lot about. I I agree with you. I think the three characters that you just mentioned are what made this book for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I I, I didn't care that the previous characters we've known and followed through other DTI novels, I, I, I didn't miss having this focus on them. I think it allowed... Focusing on these other characters allowed the author to just kind of expand and maybe do a little more. I think almost felt like he had a little more fun uh, diving deeper into these characters than maybe he could with Domar and Luxley. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. So Dayar is an Aegis agent. And like we mentioned before, an Aegis agent is like Gary Seven uh, that you would know from the original series. Now, they are this powerful temporal agency that can easily move through time. And they can predict when civilizations are on the brink of endangerment to their survival. Now, in this case, I think it's interesting that 
not only can they predict the survive uh, where uh, there's endangerment of survival, but they can also then determine when that civilization has reached maturity and they no longer need to be, I guess, helped along from these agents anymore. And so the Aegis will now leave that civilization and let them continue on their own now that they're mature. And so prior to that, they, the Aegis agents will go and (laughs) I was going to say steal, but essentially, yeah, abduct these members of that civilization that are on the brink of extinction and they breed them into genetically superior beings that they can come back later and help their own civilization. Mm-hmm. But Dayar never comes back to her civilization. She was taken to be an Aegis agent and didn't come back because by the time she got trained and, and ready, her civilization had already matured. So she was sent on different missions elsewhere. Um, what'd you think of that whole, th- I know we've had that discussed uh, or brought up in other books but this really plays a big part in the storyline for this one. What did you think about that mm-hmm. whole setup? I thought, personally, I think this is really cool. We really dive deep into what makes the Aegis who they are and, and how they operate. And it occurs to me they kind of have an inverse prime directive, which is kind of neat. Because the Federation is hands off until a civilization achieves warp drive. In the Federation mind, they achieve maturity And then the Federation comes in and says, hey, we're your neighbors. Do you want to join us? Here's, you know, let's 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 interfere, I guess, with quote marks around it. Let's, you know, introduce ourselves to the society and really become, uh, you know, friends with this newly developed society. Meanwhile, the Aegis are kind of the flip side. They'll interfere completely until the civilization is mature. Then they're hands off which I thought was a really interesting viewpoint. And I love how that contrasts with the Federation. And they bring that up in this story a little bit as far as, you know, differing worldviews on how they operate. And, you know, one of the Aegis agents, uh, Cardassian named Rodal, I'm, I'm guessing on the pronunciation again, um, talks to, you know, Dolmer and Luxley and and talks about how, you know, maybe someday the Federation won't be so scared to kind of get their hands dirty and interfere when they think it's right and that sort of thing. It's kind of neat to get this little bit of differing viewpoints on what it means to be a mature civilization that can help or hinder or be hands off on less developed civilizations. And on Earth, having Gary Seven and other agents involved in the 20th and 21st century led up, you know, like you're saying, they're helping Earth get through its issues, but not even to the point that they prevent bad things from happening. They just help the civilization along and make things happen not as bad, meaning we could be in bigger wars than what actually occurs. And then mm-hmm. once we've got to it, point of maturity that's when we led ourselves into the federation and the aegis backed off but you're right it's like a flip side they get involved before maturity federation gets involved after maturity Mm -hmm. with civilizations so it is kind of interesting so um so as you were mentioning earlier shield of gods gives more of that emphasis on the character rather than plot which is opposite of time lock 
And so tell us a little more about your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, basically, you know, Shield of the Gods turns out to be this character study, I think, personally, especially, like I said, it was kind of unexpected of Dayar and her motivations and what's driving her. And what really leapt out at me was that, as I kind of mentioned, she's she's more well-rounded and has motivations that are understandable. You know, I, th- I think a lot of modern Star Trek gets criticism from people for being, you know, just a tired old revenge plot over and over and over again. So, you know, Star Trek 09 was, you know, about revenge and, and you know, can we get, you know, something deeper than that? And it's kind of funny because this story is almost a bit of a revenge plot. You know, there's this civilization that has kind of run amok and subjugated other worlds that Dayar kind of wants to destroy. She wants to not let them succeed and not let them continue to exist. But it's got greater depth to it. You know, there are clear motivations there. And by the end, you're kind of almost sympathizing with her in her, oddly enough, plot to wipe out a species. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, so let's talk about that. So she's really looking to protect her species, the ones that she loves. And what had happened to her planet, as I mentioned earlier, she was an agent that wasn't used on the civilization she came from because they had reached maturity. But what has happened is there's another civilization called the Fethetrite that comes and attacks her world. And they're a civilization from the gum nebula that was originally mentioned in Titan in one of the Titan novels, Orion's hounds. Mm -hmm. And they are very aggressive and they're very brutal. I mean, they fight among each other. They practically eat one another or whatever. They're just so brutal. And at one point, another race comes to their planet and fights with them. And then because this, because the Fethotrite are just so violent and now they're being uh, beaten on themselves, they basically end up to a point where they join an alliance with this group and others to protect other worlds within the gum nebula. Am I getting all that right? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, you're, you're getting pretty close to what the story's about. Yeah. So yeah, it is very complicated for sure. Yeah. So, the, you know, so, okay. Again, they're brutal. They're fighting one another. Then they join an alliance with uh, other races to protect worlds in the gum nebula. But it gets to a point that after so much attacking different races and stuff to protect other planets, what starts to happen f- for this uh, Fethotrite civilization is everything starts to mature and all these planets don't need to be protected anymore but they have this fight within them. They've always got a fight. So all of a sudden this, now they're out in space and they've been visiting other worlds, protecting them. Now they start attacking worlds because they just always have to fight. They were fighting a war against bad guys. And once the bad guys are gone, they got to fight somebody else. So they just start attacking worlds. They're just attacking. That's all they do. They just fight and attack. Mm -hmm. So of course they eventually get to the planet that, um, Dayar's from and they attack her world and destroy it or she sees that that will happen in the future so being an Aegis agent she wants to prevent this from happening but 
The Aegis are like, no, we've already helped your planet out. They're mature now. We're not getting involved anymore. And she's like, but they're mm-hmm. going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed. And they're like, no, we're done. Again, opposite of the Federation. The civilization's matured, so we're not going to help, is what the Aegis agents are going to do in this. But she wants mm-hmm. to try to save her planet. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting story. And I kind of like what Christopher Bennett has to say. And I mean, I, I think everyone's pretty clear we're spoiling the, the heck out of this ebook. Sorry, you guys should have read it. <laughs> we always spoil but, every book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I love the conclusion that Christopher Bennett espouses in this story that, you know, you can give a planet or a civilization or a person all the opportunities in the world and that kind of thing and and, and help them survive and, and move them through, you know, the tough times. And it's up to them after that what they do with that. So it's it's almost like the idea that every person or every civilization can redeem itself, you know, and they should have the chance to be able to do that. Just because, you know, some somebody does some bad things now or, you know, is, you know, whatever – there is the opportunity or they should have the opportunity to be able to redeem themselves and, and become something greater than that afterwards, if that makes sense. And, and I kind of love that that's basically the takeaway from the end of the story here. And I feel like it, it might be a takeaway that a lot of people might disagree with, but at the same time, it shows a real attitude of optimism and hoping for the best and giving people and civilizations the opportunity to overcome some of the things that have made them maybe make wrong decisions in the past and that sort of thing. You know, it's like the Aegis are, I'm going to say they are like a daycare center or a school Mm -hmm. or something, and they're raising children. And I mean, parents raise children, but I I don't want to go to say that the Aegis are parents. They're more like some type of, guardian of some type that helps kind of push a society along helps them out Mm -hmm. a little and not necessarily raise them but just be their support and just give them guidance and then once the child becomes an adult they no longer need their they're no longer in daycare they're no longer in grade school and so they're they're out in the world on their own so now they have to they don't have that guidance and Mm -hmm. so they're mature and they have to handle on their own. But I guess I'm looking at this like, well, let's just say that you've got two children, they've grown up together, they've gone through school and they've been given guidance through school on, on life and, and, and education and such. And now they're out in the world, real world. And then they start fighting with each other. And it's like, no one's going to step in and do anything because, you know, they're not in school anymore. So the school's not there. The parents are still around. They could give guidance. But I guess what I'm trying to say is once the Aegis check out, they're gone. And once you're out of school, you're gone and you're on your own too. And so, mm. you know, no one's going to step in and say, stop fighting. But the Aegis really could come back and say, stop fighting. 
or or try to prevent one world taking over another but because they deem them as both being mature they're out of it they're they've checked out they've walked away they're gone well the, which is the opposite of the federation which the federation is like hey i've seen one world attacking another and we've had contact with these worlds and so we're going to step in and and try to help out or i don't know is that against the prime directive i always get confused by that i'm never really <laughs> sure what we can do in the prime directive or not if we know of two warring races that are going to fight each other and we've had contact with them should we step in and prevent it or should we just let them do it i don't know <laughs> i think that's one of the things in a little sidebar here that star trek has been written by so many people over so many years that i think the answer to that question is yes and no. <laughs> it, depend it depends who's writing the episode. <laughs> it depends who the captain is. <laughs> yeah. That too. Exactly. Yep. Totally. No, I love that idea. The, the Aegis are kind of the kindergarten teachers of the galaxy. You know, they kind of, they, they provide that in the formative years, you know, when, right. when civilizations are, children who are learning to keep crayons out of their nose See, basically you say it so much better than i do <laughs> <laughs> but yeah they you know those those formative years and and when civilizations just literally can get themselves killed because they're walking across the street not looking and a bus could come you know they provide that guidance to really just stop them from destroying themselves and then, like you say, once they're adults, once they're out in the real world, I mean, that happens to people all the time. They fall in with the wrong crowd. Uh, they don't know how to handle money, you know, like all kinds of things befall people when they're thrust out into the real world. And at some point, you know, their guardians just have to let them face the real world because they're not going to be there forever. It's kind of one of those things, like if the Aegis decides to look after a civilization well beyond its maturity level. I mean, you know, the Aegis aren't going to be there forever. And now they've committed to just pouring all the resources into making sure that the civilization, you know, has everything taken care of because they couldn't figure out how to do it themselves eventually. Like that's just kind of a, at some point the profit loss <laughs> chart just probably doesn't work out in the, in the, in favor of that. Well, and I think, I think that uh, the Dayar is kind of questioning everything that that we're saying right here because when her civilization is attacked by another civilization, she's pointing out that this meaner civilization, the ruthless ones I was talking about earlier, the conquerors, the brutal civilization, attacks her planet, and had the Aegis not got involved in this brutal civilization early on, they probably would have all killed themselves and the civilization would have died off because that's what the Aegis do. They go and help out species and civilizations that are on the brink of extinction. Well, mm -hmm. her point is, let me go back in time, use this device that is untraceable so that the Aegis agents can't find where I've gone or what I'm doing. And I'm not going to save my planet by preventing the war, I'm going to go back further and prevent the Aegis, I mean, the Aegis agents from helping the brutal civilization out and let them reach the point of extinction. And so there's that point of 
do we get involved or don't we get involved in the civilization? And she's saying, hey, had we not gotten involved, this other civilization would have lived. The brutal civilization mm-hmm. would not have ta- attacked them. So she's on that decision-making of do I do this or do I not? Now she's going this like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to prevent this brutal civilization from being affected by Aegis agents. I'm going to stop the Aegis agents from, well, I'm not going to get in the whole story about a bomb or anything, but I'm going to prevent them from what their mission is to let this Mm -hmm. society just reach extinction. But then later she questions, should I even do that? It's at this point I'm I'm kind of noticing a bit of a theme emerging here because one of the things we get towards the end that I really like is you know they they kind of okay we're getting into a lot of specifics of what happens but Rangea and Garcia end up being separated forever and Rangea ends up living out his life as uh in the care of the Aegis basically and they kind of talk briefly about going back and stopping this all from happening in the first place, stopping the theft of the device from the, the Iridian vault to begin with. But if they do that, that would have so many ripple effects that would change the lives of all the people around them. So for example, in time lock, Dulmer and his new fiance probably wouldn't have gotten together because he was working, you know, on, on this project, trying to help out the time lock and all that sort of stuff. And if you take that basic idea and blow it up large, if Dyar stops this civilization and, and in, in its cradle, basically, maybe it will have further consequences down the line as well. So the Tamika, you know, overcoming them or, or something like that could have consequences going forward. Maybe it prepares them to face something even greater in the future and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's kind of interesting that it almost, the, the micro and the macro stories kind of parallel each other a little bit, at least in my mind, I kind of, kind of extrapolated a little bit like what they were trying to say with stopping this theft early on and kind of comparing it to what Dyer wanted to do as far as the overarching plot of the story went. I think the one thing this really makes me think about is do you get involved or don't you get involved? I don't think there's a good outcome either way. You just don't know. And Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's the kind of thing if you had the power to go back in time and change something and you can pick a tragedy that happened within your own life or someone that you're close to that something bad happens to, you could go back and prevent that bad thing from happening. But now that you prevented that, it could lead to something even worse. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying from the Aegis standpoint and from the Federation standpoint, I don't, I don't think there's a right answer of getting involved in something or not. I mean, because here we have the Aegis agents, they're helping a civilization on the brink of extinction. And even though they're brutal, it doesn't matter. They're going to help them live through this time of their lives and then leave them alone. Well, then they go and kill another race. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's what she's pointing out. Had we not gotten involved, 
that brutal race would have died and not conquered and killed another one. And so really the outcome either way is bad. One civilization is going to die or another. And I think that's when she gets to a point when Rangea convinces her not to do what she's going to do because what she's trying, there's a bomb that's going to go off at, at, at this warrior race and the original agents prevent it from going off. She's going to let the bomb go off, but it's going to kill a bunch of innocent people. And mm-hmm. so he points out to her that, you know, you're making a decision that you're now going to take lives. He says that she will not be able to live with her decision of taking these lives, that she is training one set of deaths for another and the guilt will not go away. And she will have to live with that guilt for the rest of her lives. And once civilization is given a choice, it's theirs to make, no matter the outcome, good or bad. She is responsible for what happens next, not the Fethertrites or the Aegis. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know what happens. If you've read the book, everyone, you know what happens. <laughs> but uh, I thought that was really interesting. I, it just points out again to me that there's really no right answer. And it really, it, it kind of is another theme of this story is that we are all the captains of our own destiny kind of thing. You know, we we are responsible for our actions and no one else's kind of thing. And once she makes that decision to take lives, like you say, that's now on her. Now she is actively taking lives. And how can she intellectually separate herself from the, and I've, I've avoided saying the race name this entire podcast, but the Fethritrite? Okay, that sounds good. Fethritrite? Fethritrite. Something like that. But yeah, it, it, how can you morally separate yourself from them if, you know, you're going to take lives in the same way? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't square and it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that I like the ambiguity of the ending because we don't know what the right decision is. No one can possibly know, but all you can do is make the best decision for yourself and, chart your own course if that makes sense and one thing i just want to touch on briefly also is Rangea, the delton he had confessed to garcia that he didn't have time for relationships or the intimacy that he wants out of love and when he is captured by uh dayar they Basically, I guess you could say they kind of fall in love. I'm not going to get real deep into this, but in a previous book, when watching The Clock, which is the original uh, DTI novel, Rangea was in that one, and he had intimacy with another agent from the future that we find out that now um, Dayar had a relationship with or whatever. So his the feelings he was felt from this one agent of love is is within him because he's Delton and that love is now projected onto her and they live happily ever after. <laughs> That's the quickest that summary. That sums it up. <laughs> but again, it's awesome. almost like, you know, when, you know, is his love real? Because the love he feels for uh, Dayar is actually coming from the feelings of this past agent that she had a relationship with. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the emotions might have kind of a, a different origin, but it really does become about them, I feel like. And 
you know, we get a lot of kind of explanations as to how love and intimacy works with Delton's um, in a lot of detail because it's a Christopher Bennett story and he likes to talk about that sort of thing. And that's cool. I like that. But, <laughs> you know, we, we get a lot of detail in, in that sort of area. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, where those feelings come from and where they end up. Does are Are they not genuine because they're not from the people involved or does that not matter? I don't know, but it was interesting because it, it's a very alien way to think about relationships and intimacy. And I, I love it when the Star Trek aliens aren't exactly the same way that humans think and act. Exactly. And again, exploring more about the Deltons, which I, I, I do want to see more of. I'm hoping we'll see a Delton in Discovery. But uh, I just find them. Ooh, that's a neat idea. Yeah, I, it would really be great if we saw more Deltons. I'd love to know more about them. But then Rangea, who had, who is Delton, and had this relationship, at the end of the book, he does have an interesting end to his character. Dan, what did you find so interesting about his end? It's one of those things where I feel like the typical Star Trek story, and and again, I'm just in this mindset of you know characters are just you play with them in the book and then you put them back on the shelf exactly the same way you found them and you know i should know by now that you know these are original novel characters and the author can do with them whatever the heck he wants and i love that at the end everything is not just returned back to the way it was before and i mean he's done this before we had a Sullivan agent in one of the previous dti novels that ended up getting I think she was erased from history. Like it was a particularly brutal ending where nobody even remembered her until they accessed the, the protected documents in, in the vault. But, you know, in this case, it's sad that he's left. He's no longer part of the team and no longer Garcia's uh, partner, but his ending is still actually very sweet and very cool he sends a communication to Garcia from the past, I guess yes. where he's at. Is he in the past? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he's now under the care of the Aegis and he's, he's a much older man. So he's lived there and he, he says that he's had a very happy life and that sort of thing. And you know, there's an Aegis. I, I think we're to assume that the actual Aegis species are the shape-shifting cats like, um, like the cat that Gary Seven has in Assignment Earth. And, you know, he's living there among the Aegis and, and under their care. So they're cat people. Yeah. <laughs> Except when they shapeshift into not cats. Right. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, this part of the story, it was really sweet. You know, there was there's this really sweet kind of bookend on the relationship between Garcia and Rangea. And... It felt Doctor Who-ish almost, like we've seen that kind of thing yeah. where people are separated by space and time and and there's definitely a very bittersweet quality to it. And I, I don't know, I just, I was expecting to be really sad to lose his character from the main story because I really like this character and like you, I want to learn more about the Deltons and I like that perspective, but I came away from that really happy. And it was a really nice way to end his character. I think with Rangea, we start off the story with him admiring Delmar's uh, 
you know, his engagement he's found love and, and, and for Rangea, he is missing that he's, he, he's had love, he's had intimacy, but not the true depths that a Delta needs to be in love and have that real strong bond of a relationship. And so he's missing that and he can't have that with Garcia. It's, it's too dangerous, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. in work and in play. <laughs> but although they do, they do seem to contemplate it. They, like, I think if he'd have stuck around, it may have worked out. Wink, wink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you have him in this situation, but at the same time, then you have Dayar that is the villain in this book. But I feel like as we're going through the book, Dayar becomes less and less of a villain. And as we were talking about earlier, has these decisions to make of correcting or doesn't need to be corrected of what something that the Aegis had done to this brutal society, which then affects, you know, whatever, blah, 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 as we talked about before. But here's the thing. I think as we get further in this and she's make it, made her decision not to stop what the Aegis had done to save this brutal civilization, she is now, you, you feel more sympathy for her that, Mm-hmm. You know, she's had this guilt. She needs to release the guilt. She would have more guilt if she had gone through what she had planned to go through. But then Ranjea is there to help her through it. And he has now fulfilled his love by being with her. And so his love gets fulfilled. But at the same time, she becomes less and less of this villainous character and more of really, I, I kind of think, just a good guy in kind of the state that we're all in of should I do something or shouldn't I it doesn't what she was planning to do may not have been wrong or right it was just another decision Mm -hmm. that was being made and instead of the decision she was going to make was actually going to cost different lives than the ones that were already going to happen she had made the decision that she doesn't need to make that decision and carry that guilt on her and be responsible for lives because the lives that were lost before weren't her responsibility. I am getting confused just talking about (laughs) it, but it's just, you know, you get to the end of this book and there's this love between these two and he's caring for her and they have two children and they, and they live this life together. And it's, it's almost like ends in this beautiful way of just Mm -hmm. a bonding relationship. And here's Garcia. Who's now further in the future of them reading these letters about what they went through. And, the person she cared for that she loved found his love and fulfillment and trying to help this woman who needed him. They needed each other and they lived a happy life together. And so it's kind of, you know, beautiful and sweet at the end. So it's interesting how the book progresses from this, you know, typical Star Trek adventure of going through time and preventing the bad guy to, well, she's not really bad. And now they live happily ever after and there's love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really sweet. I think I think Christopher Bennett has his finger on the pulse of what makes characters tick. And and this kind of almost seems like a deconstruction of Dyar and, and what makes her tick and what she what she really needed and what the world needs now is just love, sweet love. It sounds like it, it could be a song. <laughs> Come on, Dan, sing it. No, I'm kidding. What the world? Neat. No, I'm is not this gonna, a first? Oh, I don't bad. know. You've never gotten through a whole song. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let's end this by talking about the title, "Shield of the yes. Gods." Now, this is really interesting to me because I'm not really. I'm, I'm still thinking through this. What this title really means? 
But you had a certain expectation when you saw this title before you read the book. Yeah, well, just with with the title Shield of the Gods, one of the plot points we know is a big deal in the Department of Temporal Investigations books that's come up is this idea of uh, a galaxy, I think it's a galaxy spanning shield, basically a temporal shield that prevents temporal incursions basically and we know that you know the dti and dulmer and luxley will have a hand in creating this at some point so when this book was announced and the title was revealed shield of the gods i was i was all oh yeah i know exactly what this book is about this this is going to be okay we get the payoff of that story and stuff but they didn't that didn't come up at all so you know i'm really interested to know because i'm i'm a little bit stumped myself Shield of the Gods. What do you what do you think that title means? Because I was way off in what I guessed. So, <laughs> you know, I don't really. I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know if it means that we, as people, the Federation, the Aegis, are trying to be like gods and make decisions for other civilizations. Hmm. Uh, you know, God or any God gives us certain instructions, certain rules, certain things that we need to follow to better our lives. And in a sense, the Aegis is doing that, helping societies, these civilizations through to maturity. Um, so maybe it is, are we playing God with these different civilizations when we step in and, and try to help? Mm-hmm. And the Aegis is really kind of wielding the shield of the gods to protect yeah. The younger races. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Um That makes sense. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's what Christopher Bennett is is meaning in this, but that's mm-hmm. that's what I'm coming up with. Unless you can think of well, something else. Now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. So I think I was just so fixated on that the literal, you know, shield, the the temporal whatever they're calling it that that prevents temporal incursions that I, th- I thought for sure that's what the story would be about. Well, you would but. think so, especially uh, from time lock. I mean, it, it, mm. it seems to be that way, but because this book is so character focused, I, I, I'm starting to think it, it's got to be more about them. And yeah, I, I, but, yeah. but I don't know. I'd like to hear what anybody who's listening that's read this book. I'd like to hear what their thoughts are. You know, look us up on the Babel conference, make your comments. Tell us what we got right. Tell us what we got wrong. Tell us if you want us to shut up or do something else. I don't care. Let us know something. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, I think that about does it, unless there's anything else that you want to say about this book. But I think we pretty much covered everything. I think we covered it. Um, I really enjoyed this book. I, Like I said, I was a little worried when I started it. It wasn't quite grabbing me right away, but it didn't take long for me to really get into it. And it's it's up there, I think, with the rest of the DTI. It's it's not quite on the same time twisty level of some of those stories as far as complexity of the plot. It does get a little complicated, but it's not, you know, it's not relying on some of the temporal stuff that that previous stories did as much. But I think if you're a fan of well-written characters that are a lot of fun, you'll really enjoy this book. And me personally, I had to, I think I will give this one four out of five 
slowly moving ships through a void where they can't go to warp or communicate because of temporal reasons <laughs> which is in the book <laughs> yeah which is a good thing that's you know i that sounds like a bad rating but you know sometimes you just need a little time to focus and reflect and and be alone with your thoughts you know slow down in this crazy mixed up fast moving world absolutely <laughs> um i i also enjoyed the book it was probably less about time than the previous book or previous two but i mean time is definitely a, a piece in this but i would say I'm, I'm on the same thing i would give it four out of five civilizations that aren't quite mature yet <laughs> nice <laughs> i don't know maybe i should say four out of five mature civilizations one isn't <laughs> <laughs> well shield of the gods wasn't quite what i expected the story was going to be but at the same time i really enjoyed it i think bruce you enjoyed this one as well we talked a lot about the characters being the central focus and i think that's what i like most about the star trek novels that we talk about is get really getting the chance to dive deep into characters in a way that you can't really do in a 45 minute television show or even a two hour movie. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of Star Trek books and comics is going beyond what can be done on the screen. Uh, and then that's just not special effects or any kind of visuals, but you can really go deeper into the storytelling and go deeper into their heads more so in the novels than in comics, but you can take different approaches to things. And so, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. It, you know, I, I'd like to see other DTI books come out. I think this mm -hmm. is set up to the point that um, we can go on to something totally different in and in, in a different situation and not have to build off of this story. Um, so we'll see. Maybe Christopher L. Bennett's got something else up his time sleeve that he's waiting to <laughs> expose to us. But uh, it's been fun talking about this today, but it's not the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, literary treks. McCoy eventually gets command of the Enterprise. And one of the reasons for this is that he makes little comments to Kirk occasionally about how he has a cushy job. You know, he's got, oh, this nice, comfortable chair he can sit in. Because McCoy at this point, he's got a lot of people getting sick on the Enterprise. There's colds, there's broken legs or whatever. I mean, there's just, for some reason, sick bay is busy. The 602 Club. There's a certain aspect to what's happening with superhero stories where they really sort of want the villains to be more complex and you, they want you to sometimes sympathize with them and have their um, personas be, you know, deeper, richer, you know, perhaps not so pure evil. The Ready Room. Yeah, I think it's almost like a journal or a diary entry, a verbal diary <laughs> reflection in the middle of the episode yep. when he's reflecting on society. And it's the thing that I love about it, it's all very socially aware and well-written. It's really well done. But Spock's, <laughs> Spock's verbal um, description of everything going on struck, you know, struck me this time. This would be like if in The Next Generation you hear Captain's Log, First Officer William Riker, <laughs> recording for Captain Picard, who's currently on holiday. <laughs> And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, that's generally going to be iTunes. 
And if you do get us through iTunes, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And if you have the time, please give us a star rating and a written review. We always love to hear feedback, whether that's positive or something that you want us to work a little bit more on on the show. We'd love to hear from you. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on many third-party apps such as Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RS link there as well (laughs) (laughs) and if you like to keep uh, our shows going and coming to you each and every week you can become a patron of the network on patreon visit patreon.com slash trek fm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trek fm to get all the details perks include get ready dan early access to episodes exclusive (gasps) content producer credits and more available through our special patrons website patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm as i mentioned earlier we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show or any of the shows that we do here on literary treks and there are many ways for you to do that the best place to join the larger conversation is the babel conference our listeners group on facebook just type babel that's b-a-b-e-l like the planetoid into the search field on facebook and it should come right up If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And, little disclaimer, anything you say can and might be used on the podcast. Ooh, that's exciting. (laughs) But you can also find us on our Goodreads group, where we have our bookshelves with all of our previous covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, and you'll know what's coming up on future shows. And we've had a lot of response just recently. A lot of people joining the group. I don't know what's happened, but uh, more people are joining than ever. So word's getting out. So join in on the conversations about the books and the comics, and just go to Goodreads and search for Literary Treks and click Join Group. And we also like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shamatala for their support of Trek.fm and for being associate producers here for Literary Treks as well. And Dan, when you're not trying to save civilizations from destroying your civilization, where can people find you? Well, Bruce, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube. I have a channel on there where I talk about Star Trek. That's YouTube.com slash Productions. You can find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47. And you can find me kicking around the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek as usual. And Bruce, when you're not journeying into the past, leaping from life to life, hoping that the next leap will be your leap home, where can we find you? And as I leap around, I'm picking up Star Trek books wherever I can find them. (laughs) But you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. 
You can also find me recently on an episode of Saturday Morning Trek with Aaron Harvey, where we discussed, we did a commentary, actually, a live commentary for the episode of More Tribbles, More Troubles from the animated series. So that was a lot of fun. So look for that episode. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm on there fairly often not every episode i'm a producer of the show but i'm on as a co-host quite often you can go to starwarsreport.com to check that out and of course you can find me in the babel conference so that being said thanks everyone for listening and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one